Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com, we've done your homework. Hey, everybody. If you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical, digital, or service products. Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com slash stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck. It's just the two of us, the dynamic duo, doing our thing. Training wheels are off. This is stuff you should know. Uh, can I have a, a, a brief preamble? Oh, please. Well, I know people skip around our show. Some adherents listen to every single one, of course, which we appreciate, but some people pick and choose, uh, mm-hmm. just like I do with my favorite show sometimes. Uh, but I want to urge people to listen to this if at first they're like, debt cancellation, boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, economics is not my jam at all. But, like, I, I realize that having an understanding of global debt and debt cancellation, mm-hmm. it's really a pretty fundamental, uh, like, having that fundamental understanding really helps you understand so much about politics and global economy and just when you hear that stuff on the news and you don't get it, I think it's really easy just to think like, oh, America's paying everyone's debts, right? And that's just not how it works. And to have a real understanding of that, I just think it makes you more well-armed as a human. I think that was an excellent preamble, man. Thanks. It's, this was this really is, good. Livia crushed this article. Just absolutely crushed it. It was so clearly in her wheelhouse. Um and I, I was, I actually approached it thinking it was going to be interesting, and it turned out to be one of the most fascinating things I've researched in a very long time. I thought you were going to say it turned out to be super boring for me. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really into this because you're right. Like it, when you peel this back, you're looking at the inner machinations, the most basic functioning of the global economy mm-hmm. that there is. This is it. This is the. This is what it all runs on. What we're about to talk about, and it's hugely important. And there's an idea that the West has been taking advantage. And I'm going to accidentally say the West a lot. There's yeah. a lot of different ways you can talk about the different income countries. Apparently, like the World Health Organization says low and middle income countries. Yeah. Um, uh, the United States and Europe would be higher income countries. Some people say developed and undeveloped. There's a lot. It's like a minefield, basically. So I'm going to accidentally say the West a lot, which is not correct anymore, but it still gets the point across. Yeah. And I think Livia, uh, not I think, I know, she went with the term global south to refer mm-hmm. to what we're, we think of as generally lower uh, to middle to lower income countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did make that up. But that's, you know, it's a collection of largely sort of Latin American, some Asian and African countries, which we're going to be talking about. So we'll we'll probably mix and match. I'll probably say global south a lot. 
Yeah, that's a, I mean, I've seen that virtually everywhere as well. I think the low and low middle income countries called licks and mix is like the, it's super wonky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a little cute for what we're talking about because I mean, what we are talking about is the idea that has become more and more um, widespread that the the global north, which I just recently referred to as the West, um, has long been exploiting the global south, basically taking advantage of it for its natural resources, cheap labor, and then using that money to, to enrich itself, right? Not really funneling much back. And then when it does funnel it back to the global south, it does so with strings attached or interest rates in the form of like loans, um, bonds, that kind of thing. And there's this idea that, like, that's just totally unfair, that the th- that this playing field has started out from the mm-hmm. get-go so imbalanced that the the only responsible human, humane thing to do mm-hmm. is to cancel the debt of some of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of that simple. You know, there's this idea, and, and Libby uses a great just sort of example to bring it home. Uh, when you, when someone steals your credit card or steals your identity and racks up a bunch of money in your name, you don't have to pay for that. That right. is something that you're not uh, on the hook for. And there is this called odious debt. There's a lot of people that think, you know, we should apply that same logic to sovereign debt. And mm-hmm. this isn't a new idea. This idea has been around uh, for about 100 years or so. A um, little more than that, uh, with the idea of the Spanish-American War coming to an end, mm-hmm. when the U.S. gets control of Cuba from Spain, but Spain, uh, as the colonizer, had racked up a ton of debt on the back of Cuba, right? And the U.S. and we'll talk about the power structure of why they were able to do this. It was basically because they had the power through the Paris Peace Treaty. Mm-hmm. Said, "Hey, Cuba, this isn't your fault. Uh, this is Spain's fault. So you shouldn't be." As a, you know, relatively poor nation, you shouldn't be on the hook for this. Uh, so Spain's got to step up and pay. And the U.S. had the the power, you know, at the time. They had the upper hand in that agreement. Mm-hmm. So in the Paris Peace Treaty, Spain was kind of forced into taking on that debt. Uh, but right. that's not how it always works, right? No, there's another example that kind of demonstrates the other way it can go, um, which is with the African National Congress which was headed by Nelson Mandela in the post-apartheid South Africa. Um, and they were, they were the successor to the apartheid government, and they took on all of South Africa's existing debt. Well, they considered that debt odious because a lot of that debt had been um, borrowed to spend on military and police to keep the population in line right. and to enforce apartheid, which had been globally rejected. Um, even little Stevie wasn't into apartheid at the time. <laughs> but so so they said, this is odious debt. Like, we're not going to pay this. We shouldn't be expected to pay this. This is money that we would be paying back that was borrowed to keep us repressed. How does that make any sense? Right. And the thing is, is there's no international law that recognizes the odious debt doctrine. It's more like, a come on, guys. Like, seriously, let's use yeah. our, our common sense. But common sense doesn't always, like, jive with capitalism. Fortunately for the African National Congress, um, the people who were heading South Africa under Nelson Mandela, they had a huge ally in the Soviet Union at the time. 
So they were actually like, yeah, the Soviet Union's like, these guys aren't going to pay their debt back and we're all just kind of going to go along with it. The problem is the Soviet Union crumbled and the African National Congress ended up having to pay that apartheid debt back because right. they no longer had the backing of a superpower any longer. Yeah. So th- that's a good sort of post preamble. Post amble? It was a pamble. <laughs> it was a pamble. Uh, that brings us to this idea, which is. Uh, post-colonialism and, and what do we do about this? And it is pretty pretty much agreed upon by any uh, rational thinker <laughs> that Europe plundered the world for 500 years or so, give or take. Yeah, Europe and the United States. Yeah, well, yeah, Europe, which United States, which, which came from Europe. Okay. I'm kind of lumping us all in at that point. I gotcha, yeah. And that plundering basically... Uh, led to well, where we are today. It put uh, all these different countries on different paths, one toward prosperity and one path toward uh, being poor. And uh, there's a better word for that. What's the word? Opposite of prosperity? Um, impoverished? Impoverished. That's a good one. That's what it was I was thinking, but that's even better. Yeah. And I mean, the the way that that happened was the, the, um, the global north came to the global south and said, we're going to take all of your natural resources by force. And that was just straight up colonialism, right? Well, natural resources is one thing, but then also, and we're going to make you do help us do it right? on the backs of enslaved people. Uh, I mean, we talk about slave labor and then later on it became, you know, cheap labor, which is kind of where we are now. But mm-hmm. at first it was, there was just no money being exchanged. It's, hi, we're going to take your stuff. You're going to help us take your stuff. And this is going to lead all of these different countries around the world down two very different paths. And the argument is basically like, hey, today, and and we'll get way, way more into the weeds on this stuff, but this is what led us to where we are today. So the debt forgiveness of these countries isn't just like, oh, you know, you're a poor country and we're a rich country, so we got to pay your debts. It's Mm -hmm. no, we got rich off of your backs for hundreds of years. Yeah. And so the the R word, if you want to bring up something like reparations, mm-hmm. is not like a, a, a fine that you've paid for being a bad country. Right. It is, it's almost like a better, uh, and this is, people are probably going to kill me for this, but a better way I think to think about it is a long overdue payment for mm-hmm. labor. I think that's the fairest way to look at it because the other ways of looking at it makes it seem like the, the um, global south are needy who are, who are getting handouts from the global north who are being heroic by right. giving them handouts, right? So Yeah, which is yeah. not true. No, I agree with I agree with you. I think that that's a really good way to look at at reparations especially through post-colonialism. And the other thing is a lot of people argue against things like reparations based on the idea that um like th- like you kind of touched on it that this is something that happened in the past, man. I didn't enslave anybody. I sure. didn't like go exploit the Congolese for their uh, rubber trees and cut their hands off when I caught them stealing. Like, I didn't do that. My grandparents didn't even do that. I had nothing to do with that. So colonialism, straight up colonialism, where you go in and use force and invade a country and say, all your stuff is ours now and we're using you as slave labor. That went away uh, largely in the 19th century, definitely by the 20th century. But it was replaced by a, uh, the same the same end. Yeah. Exploitation. It was just dressed up slightly differently. So like we saw with the United Fruit Company helping overthrow 
um, the, the Guatemalan government, the, the elected Guatemalan government that we talked about in our Edward Bernays PR episode, like it was kind of like that. We would go around, and by we, I mean the global north, we would go around and destabilize other countries' Uh, governments and economies to our own benefit if they weren't friendly to the kind of trade and exploitation we wanted for them. Right. And then we would see to it that somebody else would get installed. Sometimes people just straight up got assassinated, but it wasn't wholesale slavery and slaughter like it had been in colonial days. So that was post-colonialism. Today, again, the same thing is going on. We're exploiting and extracting the resources from the global south for the use and enrichment of the global north at fire sale prices. And then we're selling the things that we use those resources to make back to the global south at greatly inflated prices, which is called the trade inequality. And that is how we're keeping the global south impoverished right now. All right. That's a great boy. You just summed up the whole thing. (laughs) We're done, man. (laughs) Uh, I tell you what, this is early for a break, but let's take a break and we'll talk about this great through line example uh, that Libya included of the Democratic Republic of Congo right after this. Hey, everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website. Whether it's an online course or custom merch, Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next-generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one-time fee, or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com slash stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean. I've lost on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings 
from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. S all right, so Livia used this great example, and I love it when an example in an article like this can serve as a through line through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And this this kind of does here and there, which is really helpful for <clears throat> a, a dumb dumb like me who doesn't really get econ. But I got this, so I know if I can get this, that anyone can. <laughs> but uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which used to be Zaire, mm-hmm. let's go back to the old days, to the late 19th century. They were and are a very rich country in resources. Um, copper, cobalt, diamonds, oil, you name it. Mm-hmm. Lots of rich, mm-hmm. rich stuff. Right. Uh, in the 19th century, King Leopold of Belgium said, hey, the rest of Europe, why don't you let me go down there and basically enslave this country and use it for production of rubber and ivory? And sure, we may kill 10 million people, like half of the population. But just think of the money that's waiting for us if we do this. Mm-hmm. And Europe said, it sounds good to me. Go have at it. Uh, flash forward about 60-something years, and they won independence in 1960. And uh, a prime minister was democratically elected named Patrice uh, Lumumba. Mm-hmm. Uh, six months later, Lumumba was killed in a coup that was supported by our old friends in Belgium and the United States because of uh, suspicion of being in bed with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, a general takes power, Mobuto Sesi uh, Seiko, and through the support of the U.S. and other, um, uh, I guess, richer Western countries, basically spent about three decades lining his pockets mm-hmm. with money. And from for about 27 years, from 70 to 97, the nation's debt went from 5% of the GDP to 150%. Right. And the reason the debt went up so much is because, like you said, he's lining his pockets and uh, the other countries from the global north that were lending this money to uh, DRC knew that he was lining his pockets. They didn't care because he could turn around and use his country's natural resources to pay off these debts that he was using to enrich himself while his people were impoverished and starved. The thing is, is like that is on Sese Seiko. Sure. Right. But it's also on the lenders, the financiers who knew what he was doing and did not care about what happened to the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo. They just cared that they had a steady flow of natural resources. And that right there, that's that's as far as capitalism goes, that's fine. There's no moral hazard to that. But the thing that is makes this moment in history different than, say, the 1960s is we've now come to question that part of capitalism. Some people question capitalism as a whole, and you can do that. But I tend to think that capitalism itself is not an inherently flawed system, but that it has some really flawed um, capes that are hung around its shoulders. I don't know why I went with capes, but you get the point, right? (laughs) And one of those is the idea that corporations should maximize profits at all costs, 
without any regard to morality or global citizenship. Right. It doesn't matter. So the corporations can't really be lumped in in any legal sense because they're just doing what corporations do, being psychopaths who are out to maximize profits as much as possible. Right. So that's where we're at. Like a lot of people just stop at blaming Sese Seiko for being as corrupt as it comes mm-hmm. and plundering his own nation. But they're not also like panning to the left a little bit to, to see the larger picture. And that's what you have to do when you really are examining um, global sovereign debt crises like we're in right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's this is kind of going on a timeline. So that was the 60s and into the 70s now we go, mm-hmm. which will lead up to the 80s debt crisis. Uh, in the 70s, if everyone who knows history knows that that was a, a bad time for oil, I guess a good time if you're an exporter. Yeah, but right. oil prices went through the roof. And if you are an importer of oil, um, this is going to have a ripple effect, and it did all across the world, uh, to basically ramp up inflation, raise the cost of fuel, which affects the cost of a a lot of other things Mm -hmm. uh, because of a domino effect. And the other side of this is these oil-rich countries that we're now exporting, not only were they getting all this dough and enriching themselves from the oil, fine, that is what it is, Mm -hmm. uh, they, they then said, hey, we can now be a lender and lend money to these poorer countries and these some of these Latin American countries that are mm-hmm. really kind of growing fast. And who cares about the risk involved and everyone sending up warning signs? We're the lender and we're going to make a ton of interest off of this dough that we now have because of the oil that we are selling to them. Yeah, that would be a familiar pattern that would emerge. But that oil thing that you were talking about for non-exporting countries like the United States, that was a real problem because we saw just very recently in the last several months when oil prices go up, all prices go up because everything's so dependent on oil. And that happened in the early 80s, too. So inflation started to get so far out of hand. I think it reached like 14 percent. What was it we were like screaming about recently, like six or eight, which was yeah. bad enough? Yeah. This is 14 percent. So the guy who ran the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, Volcker um, committed what's now known as the Volcker shock. He jacked interest rates up so suddenly and so high, I think up to 20 percent, that it immediately triggered a global recession. And it definitely did within a couple of years wedge everybody out of that global recession. It stabilized that inflation, brought prices down, things got back to normal. But you had to be a really rich country to weather that fairly well. Yeah. If you weren't a rich country, you were screwed. And so these countries that had already uh, racked up tons of debt now had high interest rates and low currency values and were expected to pay these these loans back. So if you were on like a, a 3.2% or a 4% interest rate on an $80 billion loan, you owed $3.2 billion to service that loan. If it went up to 20% interest rates, you suddenly owed $15 billion to service that loan. So Mexico, Brazil, a bunch of other countries, I think 27 of them said, we can't pay these debts any longer. This is not sustainable. And frankly, it's now become odious because of this Volcker shock that we didn't do anything to do, but now we're suffering because the U.S. decided to plunge everyone into a global recession to help itself. Right. So this is going on. All these countries have thrown up their hands, basically, and said, we just can't. Like, it's not, you know, we're not saying, like, oh, we don't want to pay that. We mm-hmm. Like, we literally can't afford to. And that people started beating the drum, like you said, on odious debt again. And activists started speaking up. 
Uh, Peru is a great example that you mentioned. In 1985, uh, the president of Peru, Alan Garcia, said, you know what? We're not going to pay any payments uh, on our debt in excess of 10% of our export revenues. And that's the only way to keep our country solvent, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, which helped them out in the short term. But then all of a sudden you're doing that. And every financial institution all over the world looks and says, we can't trust Peru anymore. We can't do business with them. And we can't um, invest in Peru if we're a a company or corporation looking to invest in foreign economies. Mm -hmm. And that triggered hyperinflation there by the end of the 80s. And so all of this mess is happening in the 80s. And finally, finally, uh, two organizations stepped in and said, we got to do something about this. The International Monetary Fund, uh, the IMF, and the World Bank stepped in. These are two organizations founded post-World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, In part, the World Bank was to help uh, dig Europe out of the economic devastation they suffered during the war. And the IMF initially was just to sort of encourage um, all countries to get along economically. Um, But then after this, the IMF and the World Bank basically became a a lender, a, a, a multilateral public lender right. that's complicated to sort of explain how that all works, but let's just leave it at it was controlled still by these northern countries, the U.S. and other rich countries. And it still is. And bear this in mind for when we talk about today, the IMF is partly funded by rich countries called the Paris Club, which includes the United States and most European democracies. That right? sounds nice. The Paris Club? It does. It sounds like the kind of place I'd want to hang out. Yeah, I want to go. And have a sip of something with my pinky in the air, you know? <laughs> exactly. So um, just put that put that in your bonnet and smoke it later, right? The IMF mm. is funded in part by uh, democracies and governments around the world, okay? So the IMF and the World Bank changed their mandate. They decided now that they were going to basically aid in development around the world, but especially focusing on lower-income, middle-income countries— to help them, and this is the view of the economists at the IMF and the, their supporters, sure. to help these impoverished nations learn to be better capitalist economies um, and, and as a result become self-sustaining and self-supporting, basically creating neoliberal economies where there was, say, socialist economies or other types of economies, opening them up for business. And so they would start sending these loans to these countries at really attractive interest rates, sometimes as low as like no interest whatsoever, in which case it was basically aid. But there were strings attached. And they were things like um, increase your tax revenue, Mm -hmm. um, stop social spending, uh, all those state-owned enterprises you have, you need to privatize them to open up for competition. And most importantly... You need to open up your whole country, get rid of trade restrictions, all that stuff, open them up to international business so we can come in as unfettered as we want to. And by the way, to help you understand all this and do all this, we're going to send our own Western economists and advisors to mm-hmm. to teach you how to do this. And some of those advisors and their, their, their successors who showed up in the 80s are still there. They never left. They're just part of like that nation's government, basically. Yeah, these were called Structural Adjustment Programs, or SAPs, ironically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the proponents would argue what you just talked about, and then people that didn't think it was such a great idea would say, well, this is just sort of a new version of the same thing. Right. Uh, and which is why they call it neocolonialism. It's you coming in 
and saying, hey, we want to use your resources and tap your country or sap your country. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you got to spend your the money that we're lending you at cheap rates the way we say. Uh, a lot of countries got on board during the 1980s. Um, it also led to a lot of unrest and a lot of protests uh, in 1985. To go back to our example of the DRC, um, they had these economic policies implemented by the IMF by 1985. Uh, the Washington Post uh, did a report that basically said their hospitals and their schools are decimated. Malnutrition is going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, activists once again started rearing their heads. Uh, there was one guy who I, I think this bears maybe a deeper dive at some point, but uh, his name was Thomas Sankara, and he was the president of a West African nation called Burkina Faso in the early 80s. And a, a leftist guy who basically was beating the neo-colonialism drum. And in July of 87, he gave a big speech at the Organization of African Unity where mm-hmm. he said, everyone join with us and let's not pay this debt to our colonizers. Let's let's remember that idea. Let's get that going again. A few months later, he was assassinated in a bloody coup from his former friend who became his rival, a guy who still doesn't own up to being a part of this, like to this day. Uh, his name was, uh, and I've, I've heard a few ways of pronouncing it, but I'm going with uh, Blaise Campare. Campare. I like that. It was kind of tough. But, um, you know, so what happens is a leftist uh, organizer, president, um, advocate uh, against this speaks up and is promptly killed. And then that country promptly rejoins the IMF and World Bank. Yeah. And Sankara, um, he was very dangerous because he was starting to to make real waves. If all those African nations joined together and just said, we're not paying you back, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars would have just evaporated for the, the global north, right? So that's why he was assassinated. But he left this legacy of looking at sovereign debt among low-income nations um, in a certain way that, that some people still kind of see it through today, and which is kind of the, the lens we're looking at it through in this episode, which is that it's like the colonizers coming into a country, exploiting it, leaving, and then sending um, a bill to the uh, country right. to repair the damage done by colonialism. That that's essentially what's going on with the global north lending money uh, at interest to to the global south. Right. And in the case of Sankara at the time— uh, and it's good that he's, you know, been sort of canonized, I guess, now. But um, is that the right word? Yeah. Okay. Um, at the time, basically, it sent the message to all other countries, like, you see what happened to him when yeah. you when you rise up and try and take a stand against this kind of thing. And it basically quashed things until uh, the 90s when Bono got to be in his bonnet. Yeah. So that's a— um that's a really interesting thing that happened, and it happened almost exclusively because of Bono. There was a guy named Martin Dent who was a professor at Keele University in the UK. And in the early 90s, he came up with this idea that, hey, the millennium's coming. Let's use it as a chance to, like, wipe the debt free. Because mm-hmm. in Jewish tradition, there used to be something called the Jubilee. We've talked about it before. I don't remember what it was. I yeah. think we did one on the Rolling Jubilee, maybe? Maybe. But it's this idea that every 50 years in Jewish culture, um, all debts would be wiped free, right? I think and debts they were of saying, the poor, 
Okay, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so they were saying, Dent was saying, hey, let's just do this. We can totally do this and start the millennium fresh and everybody on a more of an equal footing. And Bono was like, I like that a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah. And he took this up and he championed said, I will follow. it. <laughs> Very nice. Sorry. He he championed it. No no need for apologies. I like I know, that I one. He championed this whole idea. Um and I don't want to say single-handedly, but largely was responsible for the eradication of about $130 billion worth of debt. He did, man. Um, almost single-handedly just by going and talking to the right people and getting them on board. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of stories of Bono's charm in these rooms with these people that mm-hmm. uh, uh, range from, you know, brutal dictators to uh, far, far-right uh, religious uh, zealots like mm-hmm. Bono gets in the room with those guys. Bono's a Christian, very, very Christian man. Super Catholic. Very Catholic. I'm reading his book still now. It's great. Um, oh, yeah? What's yeah. it called? Catholic Me, Catholic You by Bono? <laughs> it is. I was trying to think of another riff on that, but that that nailed it. That uh, it's called Surrender, I think. But um, really good book. Anyway, uh, Bono is a guy that can have a lot of sway when he gets in a room with someone and he got together with Christian groups, with NGOs, uh, with Republicans and Democrats and all kinds of people from all over the world. People he had to apologize for being in the same room with, mm-hmm. you know, because he thought he was, you know, doing some good. And he was and got a lot of people on board, um, tens of millions of supporters. Uh, it launched formally in 1996. Uh, and this was called uh, Jubilee 2000. I don't think we mentioned the official name. I think it's called mm-hmm. what's it called now? Uh, uh, it's Debt Justice. Called- Yes, that's much better. Yeah, it's a great name. I like Jubilee 2000. That has a a fun ring to it. Sure, and I think it served its purpose for a while. Uh, But because of things like the Christian group involvement, you had Republicans on board in some cases. Uh, There was a guy named uh, Spencer Bacchus from Alabama, um, a rep there, that basically said, hey, this will cost each American $1.20 a year to get children uh, out of hunger all over the world. Um, And it's not that much money. It, some people were slower to come around, but even people that were slower to come around eventually said, well, listen, they're probably not going to pay it anyway, so mm-hmm. maybe we should get on board with another plan. Right. Um, the, not everybody did. I, I read this American Heritage contemporaneous uh, article that was like, this, this is reckless, especially for the GOP. It's going to cost America billions of dollars. And for what? And now in retrospect, it's like that article hasn't aged very well, yeah. <laughs> you know, for humanity. That's what, actually. Right. Um, and so Spencer Bacchus, he's a real hero here. Like he made this his mission and he uh, actually reached across the island, worked with Maxine Waters, an arch liberal, um, and got what was called the Jubilee Act passed uh, finally in 2008. And it was a hugely bipartisan act um, that wiped out a lot of debt that America held. And by America being a part of this and other European nations being a part of this, other nations started to follow, uh, like Bono would say. Um, The IMF (laughs) got on board. The World Bank got on board. And so suddenly a lot of money that the the global south owed the global north was just wiped out. Yeah. Bono said every country deserves to live free of poverty. Every street should have a name. Do it in the name of love. Oh, wow. We could really go down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> yeah. On your knees, boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that fits. Yeah. Um, that's pretty good. 
So uh, 70%, I believe, was the number initially. Um, the debt was going to be reduced by 70% for 33 different countries mm. uh, in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And uh, the U.S. agreed to more debt cancellation. Um, I think the there was a, a Jubilee debt campaign in the U.K. that stepped up mm-hmm. between 2000 and 2015. There was about $130 billion worth of debt canceled. Uh, and we do should uh, we should point out Livia, very and I'm glad she did this. Uh, reminded us that it's not a dollar to dollar thing. Like you can spend a hundred million bucks to maybe cancel a billion dollars in debt sometimes. Right, so, because you're taking into account all the interest and restructuring yeah, yeah, and exactly. all that stuff involved. You're just they really just owe you a hundred million in principle, but it ballooned up to a billion dollars. But as far as that lower income country is concerned, that's a, a billion dollars they don't have to pay. Where to you, it was just a hundred million, just a hundred million. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's basically what happened in the sort of two thousands. Is all these countries got on board? Um, the framework was sort of led by the U.S. Uh, for the heavily indebted poor countries initiative from the World Bank and the IMF. And, you know, it it worked pretty good through the 2000s and 2010s for the most part. It helped. It, it did. And as a matter of fact, um, it was helped not just by that initiative. So that was a big deal, right? Like, we, we shouldn't really breeze past it. It was a big deal. There was a lot of heart behind it, a lot of genuine, like, humanity from countries that held a lot of debt that just said, okay, we're going to forgive this for the greater good. Um, But there was another thing that happened too, which was the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8, right? The big meltdown from the the U.S. housing market bubble. Um, That actually, because the the U.S. Fed was so interested in in combating the effects of that and the the recession that followed, they dropped interest rates Mm -hmm. like crazy to like basically zero. And so that meant that international lending rates were also really low, too, which led to easy money. A lot of people could borrow money. There were a lot of rich countries that had lots of money to lend, and um, countries that wanted it could borrow it for really cheap. And it was so cheap, you could borrow money to pay back the other money you just borrowed. It was kind of like that setup. I was a poor country at the time. Yeah. (laughs) I I did exactly that. I got a, a, a stated income loan for our first house. By mm-hmm. just walking in there and saying, uh, we make this much money. And they went, sounds great. And right. we had a bunch of credit card debt. And we rolled that into that loan because we had overborrowed for a lot of different reasons. Not because we were just living the high life, Emily's early, biz- <laughs> early business investment and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. we rolled all that into one big thing. And so I, I can like, you can use the example of an individual and it's kind of the same as these countries. It's the exact same thing. It's all the same principles. It's even largely the same mechanisms with the same people involved. Oh, yeah. As sure. far as lenders go, it's just on a global scale or like a, a like a individual scale. But it's it, that's a great point. It's virtually the same thing. So with all of this easy money, people started racking up more and more and more debt. Because it seemed like the spigot was never going to turn off, which mm-hmm. is always like when you start thinking the spigot's never going to turn off, you should stop immediately. Yeah. Because that means that the spigot turning off is right around the corner and everybody's going to get caught with the hot potato. And that's essentially what happened when COVID hit. You're mixing metaphors in a great way. Around the corner <laughs> with the hot potato. Yeah, you know, spigots and hot potatoes and <laughs> I don't right. know what's coming next. Uh, oh, probably some baseball <laughs> metaphor or something. Because, you know, you get caught with three loans and you're out. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm, I've really, I'm off my game, Chuck. I used to be so much better at this, and then are you kidding me? Kinda, you're, you're killing it. I feel like it's evaporated a little bit, just no. temporarily, but a little bit. No, no, you're crushing it. Okay, well, I say that we take a little break. I'm going to recollect myself, and we've reached the COVID pandemic having a huge impact on that debt. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So COVID-19 strikes and all of a sudden that money dries up because everybody needs money. Mm -hmm. And like all countries, lower income, middle income, high income countries are all borrowing money because business as usual has just stopped, right? Yeah. I mean, healthcare costs are going through the roof. Uh, business is going into the toilet and trade has gone into the toilet, not completely, mm-hmm. but for a large part. And 
so the the world all of a sudden was thrust into uh, a global financial crisis. And I love that Livia even used your word. She used upshot. I saw that. It's wearing off. Uh, the upshot, though, is now, uh, because of all this, there all of these countries, not all of them, but many of these countries that we've been talking about mm-hmm. are in more debt than ever before. Um, the debt burden of nations classified as developing nations went from $2.1 trillion in 2000 to $4.1 trillion in t- uh, 2009 to $11.1 in 2021. That's crazy. And then like the, the external debt to gross national income ratio among those countries, external debt is all the foreign held debt to their gross national income went from 17% in 2010 to 48.5% in 2021. A staggering number. It is. And it's a really scary number too, especially if your country is like, I need to feed my people and yeah. I need some money. And now it's the money's dried up because some of these wealthier countries are borrowing too. And that, that also means that they need the money that I already owe them. So they're not going to be uh, very interested in forgiving debts right now, especially post-COVID. So it put everybody in a really precarious situation that we're still in now. And it followed the same thing that happened in 1982. Uh, Inflation happened, which meant that the value of the dollar went down and value of international currency went down. So it made it more expensive to pay down your debts. And then also, or you needed more money to pay the same amount. And then also, um, as interest rates went up, that meant that it was unsustainable to service a debt, just like it was in 1982. It just got too expensive, and countries now are doing the same thing. They're saying, I don't know what we can do to, to pay this. We need help. Yeah, and it, a lot of it, you know, when you when you break it down, it's really important to look at where this money's coming from because it used to be a lot more like IMF multilateral sort of lending. Um, now I think uh, there was one estimate Libya included that African countries owe about 35% of their external debt to private creditors, which have uh, interest rates more along the lines of 5%, uh, 12% to Chinese creditors. They've China has really stepped in to fill a void, so mm-hmm. just kind of keep your eye on that. Um, at about 2.7%, uh, 13, uh, 13% to other governments, and 39% to those multilateral institutions that we've been talking about at a rate of about 1.5%. So more money in private debt, uh, less money in multilateral institutions. And if you're talking about two or three percentage points on hundreds of billions of dollars, that's a huge difference. Yeah. And the reason you're like, well, why don't they just get it all from the IMF? Well, those private lenders, they have high interest rates, but they don't come with strings attached. Exactly. Like raising taxes on your on your people and not spending on social programs anymore. If they're just using market conditions, right? And saying, well, your country's this risky, so we're going to charge this right. interest rate and on it. do what it. you Whereas, want with it. Right. But the IMF will say, we'll charge you a low interest rate, but you also have to completely restructure your economy to a way we say. Right. Um, so there's pluses and minuses of both. But that those private lenders becoming bigger and bigger in the last couple decades is really distressing because the, collectively, private lending now rivals like the Paris Club as far as geopolitical global influence goes. And that's that's distressing to me. You might say, well, it's not like the Paris Club and other wealthy nations did a very good job when they were in control. They were still in some way, shape or form, like um, subject to the to the people back home and their votes. Right. Right. There is at least still nominally that with Mm -hmm. with, you know, corporations, there's nothing but their shareholders. Right. 
it's just it's different to me, and I, I'm not entirely comfortable with it. But the upshot is, is there's now private lenders that own entire chunks of whole nation's economies. Like yeah. there's a, a commodities group called Glencore. I think they're out of Switzerland. Um, they own a third of Chad's na- national debt. A third. And they, they are very happy to give Chad that money because Chad has um, um, secured that debt with its natural resources. So if Chad can't pay its debt via money, Glencore says, just give us some crude oil. And they do very frequently. How much of the national debt do they owe uh, of Karen's? <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I like it. I'm, and I'm like, I'm surely saying Chad, right? Right? It's not Shad or. I think it's Chad. I think that's what I've always heard, too. That's what I've always heard. Um, because of the COVID pandemic, the Group of 20, the G20 organization basically said, you know, we can suspend some interest payments uh, because of COVID, but that's a suspension of interest. It's, it's not absolving any kind of debt at all. So it's just kind of like a temporary Band-Aid, of course. Um, and, you know, basically we're at the point now where there is not any sort of straightforward non-case-by-case way to make restructuring a country's debt happen. Uh, it's it's It makes it really tough to sort of figure out an easy solution. For sure. And before, I mean, it was convoluted enough when you just had like the IMF and the World right. Bank and the nations funding them arguing over who did what or needs to do what. Now you have China, who may or may not talk to you or come to the table if you ask them to. And then you have the private lenders who are like, hey, we're we're just in it for the money here. Uh, we, we don't want to to do any kind of debt forgiveness. And because you've got all these different players all, and all of them need to come together for debt cancellation to happen, it, it does make it much more difficult because if the private lenders just step back and say, yeah, United States, Paris Club, IMF, World Bank, you guys forgive a bunch of those debts down there in Africa and then they'll have money to pay the debts for the stuff we lent them at the same rates that right. we lent it to before. Yeah. So what you're essentially having on this global international finance scale are rich governments bailing out um, private lenders when their loans <laughs> come under jeopardy yeah. to protect those corporate profits. And those governments that fund the IMF fund it with taxpayer money. That's right. And the private Just, lenders... Uh, there's not much of a downside for them, is there? No, not at all. They can just lend, 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 and they know that eventually the IMF and the World Bank is going to bail these people out because they're softies and suckers who can't see some people starve at the at, at, in exchange for you know better <laughs> access to some uh, ore or diamonds. Right, exactly. Um, there's another way that debt has uh, can be um, canceled out, and that's becoming more and more popular these days. Uh, although on a pretty small level, if you look at the big picture, is debt relief for um, for for nature in, incentives, for natural incentives and conservation incentives. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, groups coming in. Sometimes it's uh, it's usually a private group, like in Belize, the Nature Conservancy came in in 2021 and said, and of course this is um, th- this is small beans in the big picture, but. It's happening. And they said, hey, why don't you, we'll reduce your external debt by about 10% of your GDP in exchange. You got to put about 4 million bucks a year into marine conservation. Right. Uh, or another country might step up and say, hey, we'll help preserve this coral reef. 
if and put money toward that if you cancel some of our debt. Um, climate change, uh, that's another, you know, it's not necessarily colonialism how you might traditionally think of it, mm-hmm. but there is an argument going around more and more that, hey, these richer northern countries are the ones that are destroying the environment for the most part, and these poorer countries are the ones that are suffering and don't have the kind of money to help themselves like we do. So, like, that should factor in as well. Yeah, like, if you see things like you do colonialism, you can easily apply that to climate change, too. Like, why should these countries who contributed almost nothing to climate change but are going to suffer for it have to pay for it themselves? That doesn't make any sense. Because of where they are. And then there's even worse than that. There's this terrible circular logic where those countries that are going to get hit the worst by climate change and need the most money to spend on bracing themselves for climate change are then the the riskiest countries to lend to because they're most susceptible to climate change. (laughs) So it costs them the most to borrow money (sighs) to protect themselves against climate change. Yeah, That's the situation that we're in right now. And so a lot of people have kind of moved on from colonialism to, okay, this climate change thing is actually a real thing and it's not the fault of the global south. It's the global north's responsibility to pay for the mess it created. Mm -hmm. And the global north is not necessarily on board with that at this time. Yeah. And uh, to kind of put a button on what I mentioned earlier about uh, the R word, there's a historian at the University of West Indies named Hillary Beckles who did some back of the envelope calculations. I'm sure it was more rigorous than that. (laughs) I don't want to achieve in it. But basically said in the Caribbean alone, Europeans got about 200 years of free labor to the tune of about $8 trillion. Right. So don't think of it again as a reparation. But it's like, it's just, hey, we'll, we'll pay you for all that work uh, that, that happened for two centuries, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long overdue bill, and we're going to pay it now. So if you think that $8 trillion is eye-popping, get this. Uh-oh, There's a 2022 study um, by some academics, I think, out of Austria and Spain. And they found that in the year 2015 alone, the Global North appropriated from the Global South. You ready? 12 billion tons of raw materials, mm-hmm. 822 million hectares of land, uh, I think 200 or tw- I'm sorry, 21 exajoules of electricity. Surely that's an enormous that amount, right? <laughs> and 392 billion hours of labor. This is 2015 only. That was worth to the global north $10.8 trillion. Between 1990 and two fi- 2015, that totaled $242 trillion of wow. wealth that was essentially extracted from the South by the North. And you say, well, hey, wait a minute. We're not using slave labor anymore. We're not just going in there at gunpoint and extracting the, those gems and those oil anymore. And no, it's true. But it's, it's what I was talking about earlier. There's now trade inequality where we pay very cheap prices for the raw materials and then sell at much, much higher prices back to the people we got those raw materials from. We don't give them a fair price for what this stuff we're taking from them is actually worth. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the current problem right now. And that's why a lot of people say, okay, this stuff is so imbalanced. This debt to have to pay for being impoverished by the North doesn't make any sense and we should cancel it. And I mean, I think it's pretty clear where I land on that. But there's plenty of other people who are like, look, man, I don't even feel good about paying on social spending in my own country, right? let alone another country. And those people are going to be very difficult to get on board. Uh, but it can happen. Bono did it before. He can do it again. 
Yeah, and the only thing I'll say is like, if you end up coming down on the other side of this, um, that's that's fine. If you've done the research and you understand the complications of of world economies, like what what you shouldn't do though is just think, oh, well, it's as easy as like everyone's on America's teat. Right. You know, it's it's more complicated than that. If you don't agree in the end, fine. But at least like do the heavy lifting of learning about it and then make up your mind and don't just take yeah. sort of the lazy way out. So uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. Just a quick, uh, I, I made a, a Karen joke and a Chad joke. <laughs> I love yeah. Karens and Chads and I think that is all so dumb, but Real Karens and Chads have had a hard time with that stuff. Oh, uh, and I didn't, and I, I, I didn't want to add to that. And I wasn't saying someone's being a Karen. I was just sort of uh, a tangential joke. But I, I hope that didn't cause any harm or stress. Very nice, Chuck. I think that that buttons this episode up quite nicely. I stand by the joke. That was pretty good. <laughs> uh, since Chuck stands by his joke, that means, of course, listener mail has been triggered. Great. Uh, Great. Great email about uh, from Gwen cremains <laughs> I wish it was that would explain a lot um, about cremains and amusement parks but just quickly a couple of corrections we have heard not corrections but we have heard loud and clear I know. from the wolf packers that wolf pack is a is a driver's ed term mm-hmm. it, it seemed like in a lot of different places uh, in yeah. the United States so confirmed. I can't believe it we've not heard from more people about a single thing in recent memory yeah a lot of wolf packers uh, and also, we got the, uh, I said something about the inventor of the Segway riding off a cliff. Uh, that was oh, not yeah. the inventor. Uh, that was the, at the time, owner of the Segway company, a man named Jimmy Hesselden, apparently, who was a really, really good guy. Yeah. So, a, a bunch of people recommended this podcast episode. Um, February 16, 2023 episode called The Hero Who Rode His Segway Off a Cliff from the podcast Cautionary Tales with Tim Harford. Haven't listened yet, but it sounds great. Very nice. Yeah, I heard from our friend Van Nostren about that like almost immediately after that episode came out, that it wasn't him. We got it wrong. Oh, and also quickly, since we're talking about corrections, um, there's this great video on YouTube that explains the whole Fabio goose situation. Mm -hmm. And it was way more involved than I thought. Fabio claimed at the time it was not a goose and it was a piece of camera equipment uh, because he had a camera on the front of that ride on opening day to film it. And that he tried to sue the production company. Production company said it was not camera equipment. It was a duck or a goose or whatever. So I don't know at the end of the day if that ever really bore out. Does it really matter what's true if the internet thinks it's a duck? (laughs) Nobody wrote in about that, by the way. I found that just through investigation. Nice. Uh, All right. Finally, listener mail. Uh, Hey, guys. My dad was a humorous guy, always telling jokes and pulling pranks. Uh, My mom and dad divorced when I was a teen, but they remained friends, uh, best friends, in fact. They just both agreed to go their separate ways uh, romantically. Um, Dad never remarried uh, for as long as I can remember. Even when they were still married, his joke was that he wanted to be cremated and his ashes mixed in a gallon of paint and my mother's bedroom ceiling be repainted with that paint. Uh, This is a joke that lasted decades. He repeated it every time he had a chance to with my mom rolling her eyes. Uh, My dad passed away in 2010. Uh, We planned a military honor service, had him cremated and had a memorial service at the local veterans park. I purchased five pewter tins, divided the cremains for each of his children, and we had the service and presented the urns to my siblings. My mom approached afterward and asked if it would be possible for her to get some cremains to put in an urn. 
At this point, I reached in my pocket and pulled out a sample paint jar from Home Depot and handed it to her. <laughs> Told her dad wanted her to have this. Uh, of course, I did give her a, a real urn with real cremains. The paint was unaltered. But until the day of her passing in 2017, my dad's urn proudly rested atop this paint can on my mother's mantle as a tribute to the longest-running joke in the family. Fully that executed. Very sweet. That's great. That's from uh, Zach Mitchell in St. Louis. Hats off to you, Zach. That was... That was a good one. So thank you for writing in to tell us about it. And um, I'm putting my hat back on so I can take it off to you one more time. Absolutely. Sorry to hear about your uh, parents, but that was a, a great way to honor your dad. And, for and, sure. And have fun with your mom. Well, if you want to be like Zach and take us on a roller coaster ride of emotion where there may or may not be a duck that flies into our face, you can do so via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Childproofing people's homes is hard, but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child-secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.